The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Todd Wilson of Exponential led a track called Mobilize Disciples to Multiply Disciples. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. In addition to this podcast, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. Now here's today's track session. My name is Todd Wilson. I'm founder of a ministry called Exponential. We uh, focus on church planting and multiplication. Um, I, I have the challenge right now of uh, a, a, many of you have been on the last two sessions, so th there's kind of the building three things in a row, but this workshop does stand on its own too. But I need to spend just a couple minutes for the people who weren't here to get everybody kind of onto a baseline of where we're at. Um, we, uh, Ralph Moore, if Ralph will raise his hand here too. Uh, Ralph uh, is on our team at Exponential. Um, Ralph's church uh, is one of the churches that we found that was what we would call a level five multiplying church. Um, Ralph's network of churches and what he's been involved in have planted over 2,400 churches. So Ralph's kind of our practitioner on the Exponential team of somebody who's got disciple making at the core of what they do uh, that produces as a fruit a whole lot of church planting. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time, probably the first third, um, talking about mobilization. Ralph's going to spend the last two-thirds of our time. One of the things we do at Exponential is we're always trying to look into the future of where does it seem like with where things have been and where they are seem to be headed. And so um, Ralph is a person who spent his whole career uh, disciple making at the core, church planting, church multiplication, and Ralph's conclusion at this point from what he sees around the world but in the U.S. context is that there is a very strong move in the direction of uh, bivocational micro churches, everyday missionaries with everyday mission fields that are doing uh, church work uh, where they work, basically where they work, live, and play. So I'm going to set up the issue of why mobilization is important. Ralph has spent over a year working on a book. Um, it's a free book. Um, we have over 100 free books at Exponential. We just handed you a printed copy. Anybody that's come in and didn't get a copy of the printed book, uh, they're in the boxes they're up out. here. Oh, they're out? Yeah. There's more of them downstairs at our table that you can just pick one they're up. They're out too. Oh, they are? No, there's, <laughs> just put some out. It's, it's in the, uh, the table all the way by the coffee pots in the corner. The book looks like this, so you can get a free copy of it. it I'd go right after this to get it, though. It sounds like they're almost out. They're not out. Um, but uh, on our website, if you go to exponential.org forward slash ebooks, there's over a hundred free ebooks there. Everything we're talking about is in a free ebook, um, including this made for more book. If you don't get a printed copy, it's also in all the digital formats also. Um, and Ralph's got a couple of books with us in that, but he has spent over a year on a, on a book called Mega Multi Multiply, and it's it really has this context of the future of bivocational and micro church. That's our most recent free ebook. So if you go to the website, you can download uh, the book that Ralph's going to talk to us about for for part of today. Okay. That, that tying in Mega 
Mega multi multiply. Did I get that right, Rob? There you go. There you go. It looks like that. Mega <laughs> multi multiply. Uh, and so that that as well as a hundred other books are all free in the different <coughs> digital formats um, online. This one was put out with both Exponential and Leadership Network. All right, in a nutshell, I'm going to do this really quickly for background. Um, if you take this messy drawing that's labeled 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, three circles with a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, um, mathematically, there, you can lump all 360,000 churches in America into one of five categories from math. They're either subtracting, that's level one, they're plateauing, flatline level two, they're adding, you can look at the graphs up in the corner too, they're adding level three, they're reproducing level four, or they're multiplying <clears throat> level five. And if you just take God's the God of math, if you just take math and you put churches into those five categories, 80% of US churches are in level one and two, subtracting or plateauing. <clears throat> Around 16% of U.S. churches are in a growth orientation. They're focused on growing and adding. Less than 4% of U.S. churches are reproducing or multiplying. Okay, less than 4%. So for those that weren't with us in the first two sessions, all you need to think about is what would happen if 96% of people stopped having kids? We'd be in trouble. And we are in trouble we're not starting enough new churches. You may think there's all kinds of excess capacity in church. Depending on what experts you want to talk to, there is a unity of agreement amongst all the different folks that are out there that the form of church we're doing, the way we're doing it in the prevailing way, is not going to reach 100% of people. There's gonna, in fact, the only argument is, is it 60% of Americans at this point that would not go to the kind of offering we've got? Is it 80%? Um, a lot of folks say we're headed the way of Europe. Europe, we're just a little farther back on the curve. Europe's down at 2% of people attending. Anybody know what percentage of people attend church in San Francisco? 3%. It's the lowest metro in America, 3%. Okay. Um, most of our areas are headed that direction. The, cur the curve of Europe to 2% is the curve America's on. Okay. Mega churches are helping hold us up a bit on that, but you can't have enough mega churches out of 360,000 to hold it up. Okay, so we've got to be starting new churches. That's the context of the, the levels. What we talked about in our last session, this red thing is like a magnet. Um, <clears throat> if you're at levels one or two, you're very strongly drawn to addition. If we can just get things growing, <clears throat> Our money will be okay, all our things will be okay. But most of the strategies that get us to the growth orientation then hold us back from reproducing and multiplying. The building debt we take on keeps us from sending and releasing people. The great programs that we create to draw people in keep us from releasing people to multiply. The great staff that we get to help us grow. If you made the list of all of the things we do strategically to get to level three, most of those things we do hold us back from levels four and five. The way we like to talk about it is there's, there's an operating system. And, uh, I don't mean to make it one size fits all. We're talking about the average now. For the average church in America that's messing around in this one through four range, 
there is an operating system for levels one through four. When you start talking about level five multiplication, the kind that's happening, if you were in the opening session yesterday with Shandonke Johnson, what they're doing is level five multiplication. It is a different operating system than what we're doing in the United States. It's, it is, we're not talking evolutionary change to get there, it's revolutionary change to get there, okay? So here's what we've got to not feel bad about. Um, we may not, in a lot of our existing churches, be able to get to level five, but if we can just move toward level four, four is a whole lot better than three. And what a whole lot of level four churches, including the one I attend, are trying to do is be the very best level four churches and speak into the next generation that's starting churches about new wineskins, new models, new expressions for level five so that we can see and experience some of what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, it, it was said in the opening session yesterday that we can't find any disciple-making movements in the United States, disciple-making movements. My very close friend Bobby Harrington and I co-founded discipleship.org together. The reason from Exponential, I'm involved in co-founding discipleship.org, I like to tell Bobby, I can't be successful at Exponential in planting churches until he's successful with discipleship.org. Because if we don't get the disciple-making part right, we're not going to... Church planting and multiplication is just an overflow of what happens with disciple-making. Okay? We don't focus on the church planting and multiplication. We focus on the disciple-making Jesus way. That makes sense? So that's what all this is about. What we talked about in the last session... Don't worry about, all of this is in the free, if you just pick one of our free ebooks, Multipliers is a free download. So if you go to exponential.org forward slash ebooks, the book Multipliers has most of our content, including all of this that we're covering. So in all this messiness, just picture there's three different lines here. One of the lines is discipleship. We have to put disciple making as the core thing we're focusing on. And we need to do it Jesus way. The second line is mobilization. We, we, we have to be careful, especially in the U.S. church. Here's what our tendency would be. Even if we start doing discipleship the right way, it will be our tendency with the scorecards we have to take the fruit of that disciple making and use it inwardly to grow our churches bigger. Is that, you picture what I'm saying? That's how we do it today. We have created a programmatic approach to growing churches that we need to consume all of the volunteer hours that we can to grow the churches bigger. There's no leftover margin. We're not taking a first fruits principle where the first 10% of our labors go to sending. All of our time is consumed in how we programmatically grow and there's not anything left over for mobilization. Mobilization is really volunteerism. And so what we're going to talk about in this session, this third session, is the mobilization dimension. That, that's what we'll be focusing on. The third dimension you see here is what's called capacity building. It's how are we doing church that, that gives us this balance of additional application. So Ralph and I are going to kind of tag team. I'm going to cover the mobilization part and some principles. And then the capacity building and mobilization part with microchurch and Bivo, we're kind of combining the two together. Um, to make clear, from exponential standpoint, um, the discipleship dimension, discipleship.org that's running this conference, 
that's for us that's that dimension the capacity building the church piece that's what exponential focus is on and we're birthing we've already birthed that we just haven't publicly done a bunch Derek Bell who's in the back corner um, exponential and discipleship.org or sister ministries we're now launching a made for more nonprofit <laughs> just like discipleship.org just like exponential so that all three ministries have a synergistic thing together where discipleship can't be effective in its movements if the other dimensions aren't effective and exponential can't be effective. So you've got three different nonprofits now that are conferencing, ebooks, resources, functioning in a way that they all uh, kind of work together, I guess I'd say. All right, any questions as we get going? Um, so the five, you said there's no churches in America that's doing number five. There's very few. We use zero percent only because uh, five or six years ago, Ed Stetzer, who's a, one of the leading gather data people, had a book called Viral Churches. They, their definition of viral church is really consistent with our level five. They had, Warren Bird and Stetzer had a hard time finding any viral churches. Ralph Moore's church was one of the few that they found. And what they said about his level five church was the distinction for them was Ralph's church would have to actually put a strategy in place to stop their multiplication from happening. Not to try to get it to happen, but they would have to put a strategy in place to stop it from happening. If you, again, Shadonke that opened up the other day, if you go look what they're doing, they can't stop it at this point. Like, they would actually have to go put a strategy in place to stop it from happening. But like the other guys here, Putman and Galtee, like their churches would be in that 0%. Nope. Nope. Level four. Okay, so five is more like a home church model that's just multiplying out? It don't think model. Okay. Yeah. And don't think home church. And don't okay. think home church. Right. <laughs> just hold that, that thought. Um, here's the deal. This is what's going to mess your paradigm up, okay? Level three, addition-focused churches, okay? Outreach Magazine puts out every year the 100 biggest churches, the 100 fastest-growing churches, the 100 most innovative churches. Here's the bad news. Most of those churches are level three. So think about that. The churches that we are wanting to become like are level three. At level four, we can programmatically, the church that I'm part of started over 200 churches. We're level four. And the reason we're level four is that we're programmatic. We tithe to church planting. We have an intern program. We, do, we coach church planters. We do lots of good stuff to be at level four. And if the lead pastor and me died today, there's a good chance within three to five years that our church might not be planting churches. Because that, that issue that at level five, it's so deeply ingrained in your DNA, you'd have to do something to stop it. I'm going to suggest to you that these two dimensions of the method of discipleship that we do, if the method of discipleship is programmatic, the way we add disciples is through programs, great worship, great children's ministry, great marketing, great, 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 rather than Jesus' way, which is one disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple, as soon as it's programmatic in disciple making, you can already predict that that church is gonna be limited to level four best. You don't have to go any farther. All you have to do, go study overseas movements, go look what is doing, and you will find at the core Jesus method of disciple making. It enables level five multiplication. The fruit of Jesus style, 
Look at, look at his thing. A disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple. One becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight. That's multiplication. If you put multiplication as your core engine in disciple making, you have to multiply churches. Do the reverse. If we're not seeing churches multiply, then you can reverse engineer and go back and say, we must not be doing discipleship Jesus' way. That makes sense? Now, I would also say there's a second factor, though. Even if we're doing a pretty good job at discipleship Jesus' way, the mobilization part of, so what do we do with the fruit of that Jesus style of disciple making? And the danger in the U.S. church, because of the operating system of how we measure success, oh man, these mature disciples that we're producing, what a great volunteer army that is for growing our churches bigger. If we don't let the fruit of healthy disciple making be mobilization, then we're, we're just going to be stuck in this paradigm of growing bigger and bigger churches. Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, the mobilization part, here's, here's what, yeah, I'm going to give you kind of the synopsis so we can get Ralph up here. In the book Made for More that everyone got a copy of or you can grab one downstairs, um, what we're doing this coming year is we wanted a framework for churches to think through what kinds of shifts need to happen just on the mobilization side of, of things. Um, here's, here's how we got to the book of Ephesians. Um, if you look at personal calling for a minute, just forget the church, but the individual calling of individual believers, um, I think you can start in John 10.10 10, that when Jesus says, I came that you might have life, and if you look at the Greek, take hold of it more abundantly. What we lose sight of is just by the grace of Jesus, we can have life. The idea of taking hold of more abundant life is actually an active thing that has to happen. Let me give you the analogy. You can have a marriage by walking down the aisle and saying your vows. You have to take hold of an abundant marriage. See the difference? You can have a marriage by going through the formality, but you gotta take hold of an abundant marriage. If we just start with calling for a second, the idea that we get to have life, this eternal life, because we know Jesus, but the idea that I came that you might have life and take hold of it more abundantly, there's still an active part there of what it means that, that we gotta go after it. I'm gonna suggest to you that we have the most unbelievable army yet to be tapped in the U.S. church mm -hmm. that is the latent capacity of people who have not discovered their calling of abundance. And here's the travesty. The church is getting in the way. Let it sink in. Here's, and here's what I mean by that, okay? Our kids, my kids, all right, I had a son who was really brainy, a son who was really good in arts. What did I do with my son in arts? We gotta get you guitar lessons, get you music lessons. It's the do, do, do. You see a giftedness, gotta get the do. Here's what happens, we get our kids doing things they're good at, we skip the being, who are you created to be, we focus on the do, we send them to college and say, you better get this right, we're spending a lot of money on it, and what is the first question that kids out of college are asking? 
not who am I. What am I? I, I just got trained to do, where am I going to go to do what I just, and depending on the job market, they might get to pick where they go and they might not get to. And then we wonder why 20 years later they have a midlife crisis, oh my goodness, am I doing what I was supposed to do? And the reason is we skip the B part. We skip the who am I created to be. Now look what we do in church. Do we help people figure out who they're created to be? I'm talking the uniqueness of who they're created to be now. Okay? We are in the church the largest mobilizer of volunteers in the history of the world. In the United States right now, add up all the volunteer hours that the church mobilizes volunteers for the church's purposes, assign an hourly wage to it, and we have one of the largest economies in the world for our own purposes. And look what we're doing. Think about the difference between volunteerism and living as a missionary on your calling. Volunteerism, the definition of volunteerism is that I sacrifice my time, my talent, and my treasure for someone's thing. The, the definition of living called or living as a missionary is I surrender myself 24-7 to Jesus' plan for my life. And oftentimes the programmatic approach to the church is actually getting in the way of helping people live as missionaries, everyday missionaries to everyday mission fields, because we don't see the everyday mission fields outside the walls of the church. We see the come and see to the church rather than the go and be. Is that making sense? So let me fly through the narrative. You, um, what you're getting, this resource that we just created that just came out, made for more, this is actually a resource kit for church staff, elders, and teams. And the entire thing is a study through the book of Ephesians that we, we're hoping church staff and elders will go through um, on this idea of mobilizing God's people God's way. Um, so let me kind of give you the narrative. All we've done is through the six books of, or six chapters of Ephesians, what can we extract about calling and mobilization um, through the book of Ephesians? So, um, if you, can yes. you give me a definition for what you, when you refer to mobilization? If you'll hold that thought, we're gonna, I'm, I will hit that. But mobile, I'll just say really quickly, mobilization is what I do with living my faith out. And especially in our context at Exponential, it's within the context of calling. God has given me a calling. What am I doing with it? And as I walk through the Ephesians thing, I think it'll come to life a little bit better. Okay? So here's, here's the narrative on the book of Ephesians, the way we're going through it. In Ephesians 1, I actually think if, if you look at Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, I love Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 is actually one of the best purpose statements for the church. Okay? Um, the church is to be the fullness of Jesus into every crack and cranny of society. If, if you let yourself read, what, what is Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 saying is that Jesus is and can be the fullness of everything in every way, everywhere. Think, think for a minute about what are the examples you can think of in your life where something can fill something in every way. It can completely fill something. The only examples I can even come up with, and I'm an engineer, the air in this room, the water in a tank. But, but think about the water or the air in this room filling every crack and cranny. Ephesians 1 tells us that the church 
is to be the fullness of Jesus into every crack and cranny of society. Okay? We're to be like the air in this room filling everything. Now let me ask you, a programmatic level three approach to church that is a come and see, that consumes all the volunteer hours to run the functions of the church to come and see, how do we fill all the corners of society? You can't. And so if we learn from Ephesians 1, if we trust and believe that Jesus can fill everything in every way, and the, and the church is to try to, in society, fill everything, just from a strategy standpoint, you would say, well, the only way that can happen is if we're sending people into the cracks and crannies of society. So this idea that we are all missionaries, everyday missionaries, with everyday mission fields where we already work, live, and play, how else do we permeate all the corners of society other than that? And, and the first problem we run into is we aren't, the operating system of church in the U.S. right now is not one that is to equip and mobilize beyond the church. It is to come and see. Okay? So if we move on to Ephesians 2, especially Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in. I'm going to suggest to you that on the be, do, go, who am I created to be, what am I made to do, and where am I supposed to do it? If you just take be, do, go, who am I created to be, what am I made to do, where am I supposed to do it? Here's what I want to take you back to for a second. Um, in nature, there are thousands of sweet spots. If you say, what's the definition of a sweet spot? A baseball bat has a sweet spot, a golf club has a sweet spot. This room has an acoustic sweet spot. My glasses have a sweet spot. There, there's literally thousands of sweet spots in nature. And here's what ties every sweet spot together. There's a design, a purpose, and a position. Design, purpose, position. Look at the, look at the elements of the questions. Who am I created to be? That's a design question. What am I made to do? That's a purpose question. Where the heck am I supposed to do it is a position question. I'm going to suggest to you that those three, the reason The Purpose Driven Life was one of the best selling books in history is that the three most natural questions people ask, who am I created to be, what am I made to do, where am I supposed to do it? Here's what happened. In the fall of man in the garden, Satan stole all three things. We lost our identity in Christ, or in, in God. We lost the who am I created to be. He lost the, the, if you look at the work that was being done, now I gotta toil and work and go find other work. We lost the what we were to do, and we physically lost the position of eternity in the garden to now a physical death on earth. <clears throat> Satan stole our sweet spots. And ever since then, man has asked the three questions, who am I created to be, what am I supposed to do, where am I supposed to do it? And here's the deal, we'll be asking those three questions till we're in eternity. The only question is are we roughly going to get ourselves in position to be a little bit lined up with who we're created to be and what we're supposed to do and where we're supposed to do it. And again, I'm going to suggest to you that the average church in America doesn't even see it as their role to try to help answer those three questions for people. Okay. 
And what I started to say earlier is at least colleges, at least colleges are trying to help students figure out what they're supposed to do. If we were to really be honest with ourselves and saying, well, to what degree are we helping our students really understand who they're created to be and what they're made to do and where they're supposed to? If colleges are only going to get one of the three, who the heck's going to get the other ones for, for people? So the, the opportunity we've got in the church for this mobilizing people on their sweet spot is huge. I'm going to suggest that in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, okay, there's a design, he has uniquely made it, Psalm 139, he knew us in our mother's womb. God has workmanship, there's a unique design for each one of us. We're his workmanship created to do good works and deeds that he prepared in advance for us to do. There are specific good deeds that we're to do, the do part. And I love the end. Paul could have not said that we are to walk in. Okay? We could have been designed to be beautiful trophies on the wall for God. It could have been, you're created in Christ Jesus to do these great things that God could just really savor the, how cool his workmanship in, in us is, but we are to walk in them. That means we're actually supposed to engage and do something with the unique workmanship he's given us. And, and I'm just going to suggest to you that volunteerism and us mobilizing the largest army of volunteers in the history of the world does not necessarily equal mobilizing God's masterpieces. Okay? So what we would say is that in Ephesians 2, uh, let, me, let me, I missed one point. In Ephesians 1, that idea of the mystery of Jesus filling everything, we've got to change and shift our thinking from more effort, more programmatic effort, to more Jesus in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 2, we've got to shift our paradigm of thinking from we need more volunteers to we need more masterpieces of God to mobilize. we got to start seeing people not as a dollar sign, not as a time allotment into some slot that could be filled, but we need to see people as God's workmanship that there is a unique thing they're made to do. There's God's already defined unique good works and deeds for people. Our role is to help them figure out how to cooperate with what God's already done, not to do our agenda. This is where um, Home Depot's old model of you can do it, we can help. Okay. Um, the church's motto is we can do it, you can help. We need your help, fill in the blank, to do this capital campaign, to fill up all our children's slots. To, if we need you to help us do our thing. You can help us do our thing. That's what volunteerism is called. And, and guess what? All you need is a warm body for that. We can completely bypass the, the, the unique workmanship part of, of how God's created people to plug them in. All right, if we get to Ephesians 3, um, what I love about Ephesians 3 is it actually gives us the check on the motive. The motive of what we got to make sure that our motive for doing stuff is love. It's not guilting. It's not, there's all kinds of unhealthy motives for why we mobilize. But we got to keep coming back to the reason we mobilize is love. So the shift that's got to happen in Ephesians 3 is we got to go from more guilt to more love when we're, when we're mobilizing people. If we get into Ephesians 4, um, Theologians will be debating for the rest of until Jesus comes 
whether the five-fold gifting is still active or alive or not alive or whatever. And I, I'm not going to try to solve it because if we haven't been able to solve it till now, I'm not going to try to solve it. But here's what I am going to say. In Ephesians 4:11 through 16, as pastors, we usually stop, you know, it's Jesus himself gave some to be, some to be, some to be. And we can argue whether the gifts are still alive or not. Um, but if we say for what purpose, to, to equip people for works of service, we usually stop right there because that serves our purposes in a we can do it, you can help. If Jesus gave people to us so we can equip them for works of service, we like to stop right there. Keep reading the passage because it goes on to say for what purpose? That we might attain the full measure of the fullness of Jesus. It actually is the same word going back to Ephesians 1 that, Jesus, that the church is to be the fullness of Jesus into all cracks and crannies of society. Here's the deal in Ephesians 4, if you can get past the apostles and prophets and everything, is, is it only takes one person in the body of Christ, in that mosaic of gifting, to not engage their giftedness, to hold us back from reaching the full maturity as a body of Christ. In other words, if we're going to reach the full maturity of the fullness of Jesus as a church family, we got to be mobilizing everybody on their Ephesians 2.10 gifting. And if we don't, I'm, I'm telling you, I don't want to stand before God someday in the stewardship issue of him saying, what the heck were you doing? Why were you holding so many people back from the giftedness that I gave them and the mission that I gave them and the good works that I planned for them for your selfish reasons, mm -hmm. for growing your church bigger. And, and, and it, like it just, it actually, ugh, it did, freaks me out thinking about it. Like, I'm still on staff at the church, so it freaks me out. All right, in Ephesians 4, we, we would say the, the shift that's fundamentally there is we've got to shift from more hierarchy and structure to more missionaries. Mm -hmm. We've got to see that this mosaic of giftedness if we're going to fill every crack and cranny of society, it's going to take this mosaic of all these missionaries with Ephesians 2.10 callings that we got to get into the marketplace, we got to get into neighborhoods, we got to get places. At our exponential event earlier this week in San Francisco, um, a guy named Pat Gelsinger, Pat is the uh, CEO of VMware, one of the largest technical companies. He was the first chief technology officer at Intel. Um, Pat got up on the stage in the opening session and said, hey, 3% of people are going to be at church this Sunday and 76% of people are going to be at work on Monday. And he said, here's the deal. This is the CEO of one of the largest tech companies in America. He said, here's the deal. 76% of people are going to be in business. I'm the pastor of 26,000 employees at VMware. He said, that is the biggest mission field we have right now, because the common denominator is everybody works. We got to figure out how to get everyday missionaries into the everyday mission fields of work kind of thing. So the Ephesians 4 piece is this idea of we got to go from our hierarchical thing to missionaries. If we get into Ephesians 5, what I love in Ephesians 5, you know, people will say that the thing about Ephesians, it's the rules for living, be this, do this, be this, do this, be this, do this. I love the pivotal transition where Paul says, and make the most of every opportunity. That idea of make the most of every opportunity, like 
Well, why so much focus on good living? Be this, do this, holy living, be this, do this. It's actually for the purpose of making the most of our opportunity to be witnesses where we are kind of thing. So the Ephesians 5 shift is we've got to shift from more programs to more mission fields. We've got to see the everyday places where people work, live, study, and play as the actual mission field that we're mobilizing people to. Ephesians 6, um, I would suggest this is where we link back to the prayer and fasting. This is where we link back to the spiritual warfare. Here's the thing. Could it be that the, the reason we aren't, the, the way you saw Shadonke Johnson with prayer and fasting embedding their movement in the opening session, could it be the reason that's not our paradigm in the U.S. is that we don't need to? And the reason we don't need to is because we don't actually have the spiritual warfare from the enemy because he's already distracted us with a level three operating system. It, we, we're already so messed up on this that he doesn't need to give us any more curveballs because we're doing it the wrong way. So here's the deal for me in Ephesians 6. If we're actually mobilizing people God's way, that is the single biggest threat to the enemy that the enemy could have. Think about it. If you could just mobilize 5% of the people in your church on their unique Ephesians 2.10 calling, just 5%, you will change your community. Just 5%. I got bad news for you. Most of us are not mobilizing more than 0.1% of the people in our churches on their unique calling. We don't have a clue what their unique calling is, okay? Because it's not our orientation. So if we're not stewarding that and we're not mobilizing that, why has Satan even got to get in the way in that? He's already distracted us. But if the flip side were true, if we were actually mobilizing, imagine if we were mobilizing people on their, on their calling, making a difference, doing what the Acts 2 church was doing and making a difference, what kind of spiritual warfare and, and spiritual attack and demonic attack would we experience? All of a sudden, Satan would be all over us. Like, we're getting in the way now. We're threatening. That's the context of Ephesians 6 is if we're actually cooperating with God his way, man is the evil one going to be after us. So I would actually suggest that for a lot of us, where Ephesians 6 is sort of like, hmm, it, it, it could be that we aren't doing it God's way to where, where things come up. All right, that's the sort of shifts through Ephesians. Um, I'm going to ask Ralph to go ahead and what time do we have till? Um, we got another half hour. Four, okay. 35 minutes. So, Good stuff. It's good stuff, huh? So I, I want to kind of build off of that, and I, and, and I, I want to, first I want to give you a little bit of background. I, I started a church with 12 people in 1971. Uh, we began by accident. We were at level two, where we were kind of plateaued. We were in stasis. Uh, we sent 20% 20, 20 of our congregation to plant a church. We were at 125, 25 left. Uh, we actually grew the next week. The Lord sent more people and went away, and that church grew. It was kind of like God saying, hey, stupid, I'm trying to do something here, cooperate. And so we began to plant churches at level four. Uh, went from two to four. Uh, we were, and when I say four, we were controlling everything. I was controlling everything. And I moved to Hawaii with a, a goal. Uh, at that time, 4% of the population were 
Roman Catholic, Protestant, Mormon, or Jehovah's Witness, according to the U.S. Census. And God gave us a, a, a vision to plant enough churches in 10 years, or help people plant, that we had one more percent of the population to the Christian population, which meant Christianity would grow by 25%. And it took us 11 years to do it. Uh, the outfall of that was well, we got rolling planting churches. We did, I think, 62 churches in Hawaii. Uh, we had to be level five, because I'm never gonna pastor. I pastored 2,000 people at the most. I had to train guys to be pastors, but they had to train guys to be pastors or we wouldn't get there. And we got there so well that Cordero moved to town and New Hope started planting churches. And they plant big churches. We plant churches of about 140. I'm gonna to talk to you about microchurch, but in the book I wrote, I scraped up every microchurch pastor in our movement, and there's about 10 of them. Uh, we're, we're real good at churches of about 140, 150. We got one of 10,000. We got another of 7,000. I've done a couple of 2,000. So my context isn't the microchurch. My vision is, I think this is where we're gonna to have to go in the future. I'll tell you why in a minute. But we did this church planting thing. A whole bunch of other people jumped on board and started planting churches because we kind of reached a critical mass. This is the thing to do in Hawaii. It's what Todd's talking about. We get to the tipping point where norm isn't big. Norm is multiplied. Norm is much. In 2006, a bunch of us uh, hired the Barna team to come to Hawaii and find out exactly what percentage of people in Hawaii go to church call themselves Christians because the Catholic Church had been saying 22%. Uh, uh, some of us doubted that. We thought it was a little high. What George Barner found was that 67% of the people in the state called themselves Protestants or Catholics, not Jehovah's Witnesses, not Mormons. And this is 2006 from 1983. And 34% of those interviewed said that they had been to a church service in the last seven days. So it made a huge difference in the culture. And, and so I'm just trying to give you, I know a little bit about what I'm talking about. And that as we get into this, I'm seeing a shift in the culture. Uh, Todd put me onto this. Todd wrote a paper. Uh, it got my attention. I asked him if I could participate. He threw it at me, write a book. And so we kind of worked together on this thing. So it's not just a Ralph Moore deal. It's, it's a Todd Wilson thing. And I want to just kind of take you through part of this real quickly. I'm a storyteller, so I'm going to start out by telling you some stories. Um, this is called Mega Multi Multiply 1710 Characteristics of a Multiply Church. We may not get to the characteristics. We're going to get more to the, to the why and the what rather than the characteristics or more the how-tos. Um, there's the book. So Mega Multi, multi Multiply, what is it? Well, our shifting culture is demanding uh, new church forms from us. Uh, we're, we're seeing that millennials are turned off to church in general. And when you drill down a little bit, one of the reasons that they're turned off is the way that they see us abusing money and abusing people. That we're building edifices and we're spending a lot of money on that and people are starving in America as well as starving in Africa and we're not doing much about it. The other thing is that they're in a culture where everything is digital and they're, and they're hungry for relationships and they go to big churches and they're not finding relationships. And so uh, there's, a, there's a general turning against Christianity. The left is speaking louder and louder and harsher and harsher. And that could end up curtailing our religious freedoms. Uh, we know that we're losing ground statistically. 
Uh, we, we're losing the overall church, including the liberal church. Uh, we're losing about one percent every ten, every seven years, or about nine tenths of one percent every seven years in terms of just uh, uh, the size of, of the church. We're shrinking. Evangelical church is still growing, but we're losing ground in terms of the population is growing faster, and so we're going to have to modify to meet the needs of an ever-changing culture and a culture that's making different demands on us. And so the response that I'm coming up with is that we would multiply, now be careful you think this through with me, locally discipled, freelance, microchurch planters. And you're gonna have to read the book to get the whole thing together, but locally discipled, freelance, and the third thing is microchurch planters. I wanna take us beyond that mobilizing the everyday missionary. To me, that's just a given. That's why I've pastored churches. I, I've lived in Ephesians 2.10, that you go to that workplace and you do a Bible study. You make a disciple. Uh, you, you know, you're part of a soccer mom's deal. Well, then you bring Jesus into that thing. But I, I want to be a little bit more selective. I want to push it uh, that everybody in the church should be multi mobilized to become an everyday missionary. There's a few people who have pastoral gifts, and that's what I want to talk about in the next few minutes. Because if we're going to multiply churches, I've been talking to my friend Jeremy, who we've been friends for two hours now, and uh, he's in a level three church that likes to be level three, and he's trying to figure out how do I get to level five. Well, that's what this is all about, how you could keep a wineskin intact and then get off in the corner and work with a few fanatical people and plant some microchurches and it won't cost a whole lot of money, and it's not gonna disrupt the church uh, and, and do things very much. And so I wanna talk about these things and how they work, and so I'm, I'm assuming that you can extrapolate to your community, to your church, to the giftings in your church from the stories that I'm about to tell. And so uh, I wanna start with a story in this room. Matthew, raise your hand. In fact, stand up. I want you to admire his beard. Um, <laughs> This guy built the website that you all interacted with, that's the discipleship.org website. That's his career. He's a freelance pastor who has a career building websites. Freelance is becoming a part of the terminology in America. We'll get into that a little bit. Huge percentage of people in America are, have a job and then they have something else that they're doing on the side. It's called a side hustle or a side gig or whatever. But what, what I'm proposing is that we start to get people to keep their career and then do the thing in the church as a freelance thing. Maybe go to your church while they're pastoring their church on Tuesday night. Uh, and so I'm gonna tell you a couple stories. Um, I, I, I'm gonna take them out of order. This guy was an MD in Santa Rosa, California. When I was in Hermosa Beach, uh, Tom McCarthy was scheduled, if I died in an airplane crash, he's gonna take over the church, and he's willing to give up his medical practice to do it. He's pastoring, he's, he's, a, he's a doctor, but we're a big church, and so we can afford to buy him out of, of the deal. He moved to Santa Rosa, started teaching Bible study in a church where his doctrine was a little different than theirs, and the pastor came to him, and they loved each other, and said, you know, we're gonna be a train wreck if we keep going on this path. Why don't you start a church, and I'll back you? So he flies to Honolulu, we spent four days together. We've been together for years. I discipled him from, from the get-go when he first became a Christian. And just, what do I do? How do I do this thing? And so he's, he, as a career doctor, does a freelance church starting in his house, and it grows to 1,000 people, and it never multiplied. He died, 
Another guy who was the first guy I ever discipled in my life named Dan Boyd took over the church and it actually shrank in number, but they've multiplied churches throughout Northern California and they've got 30 churches going in Fiji. So uh, this is the possibility of somebody who gets a hold of this thing and says, I could do this. Uh, in Honolulu, there was a guy in my church staff named Wendell Alento. He's a graduate of Annapolis, the <coughs> Naval Academy. Um, decided that God called him to be a pastor, resigned from the Navy, and began to mow lawns in Honolulu until he could figure out how to get involved with the church and do whatever it was that God called him to do. And so uh, he got involved with one of our church plants that wasn't satisfying to him. Uh, he came to us. Uh, I worked with him for a, a little while, and then he came on our staff. One of the most valuable staff members we ever had, he comes to me one night. There's a, a shooting at the Xerox Corporation. Somebody went in and murdered five of the people that they worked with in this one conference room. Uh, Xerox had to move out of the building because people in Hawaii are largely Asian and they're superstitious and they didn't want to be in that building. And so Wendell comes to me and says, God told me that I'm supposed to go become the pastor of Xerox. Now this is not like I'm going to run a Bible study. I'm going to be the pastor of Xerox. And I quickly informed him that he had had a bad dream and that wasn't God's will for his life because we needed him because I hadn't yet bought into what I'm going to teach you. And part of why I did buy into it is Wendell Alento. So he goes, he gets a job and starts on Monday and on Thursday morning he goes into the conference room where the murders happened. And in his words, I went in there to agitate the demons. And so he goes in with his guitar and he sits there early in the morning, nobody else is in the place, and he's just singing songs to irritate the demons. The dragon lady that everybody's fearful of, Japanese-American woman that ran the place, caught him. And she just comes at him. What are you doing here? He told her, she starts crying because she's a Buddhist and they believe in demons. And so she, she, she humbly asked at Wendell, would you be willing to do this every week? Would you just come in once a week and, and just do what you're doing? And so he did. That's all he did. And pretty soon, office gossip gets around that he's doing this thing, and people start dropping by his desk asking for prayer. You know, my son's having trouble in school. He's being bullied. Would you pray for him? Uh, I think my wife might be saying to another man, would you pray for my marriage? One thing leads to another, and pretty soon Wendell starts a little church. Uh, they, they find some empty office space in downtown Honolulu. They're in the business district, and they move, and it grows. It gets to like 120 people, which I'm not against things growing. I like them to multiply more than I like them to grow. But this thing grew to about 120. He made a mistake. He brought another pastor in who's a, kind of a level two guy wanting to go to three. And that guy does whatever he can to turn that deal into a department of his congregation and, and killed it dead. Mm -hmm. And so today, Wendell is pastoring three churches at 6.30 in the morning. One meets on, on Monday morning. I think one is Wednesday, one is Thursday. The Monday morning one meets in a bar. The other two meet in a restaurant, same restaurant, and it's three different congregations. They're, they're standalone, autonomous churches that are not a part of First Press, where, where Wendell now hangs his hat. Wendell is a member of First Press. He tithes at First Press, but he's pastoring these churches during the week time. And he's pastoring people, and they're evangelizing their friends. Uh, it's mostly people who are single parents who are not going to get to church because they got soccer games. The downside of that is that the kids aren't getting very much. And that's just one of the things we're having to deal with. But that's one little story. Is this good? 
I um, was in Sri Lanka a number of years ago. Actually, I was there this summer, and I found out that, that the story I'm about to tell you happened 25 years ago. I thought it was like seven or eight. And um, again, I'm wanting you to extrapolate. How can I take these stories and turn them into reality with people in my church who are there? And so I'm in Sri Lanka for a week, and I do my little teaching, and I'm in a church that has planted a whole bunch of microchurches all over the country. In fact, when I was just there, I found out they have like 2,100 churches uh, now going. Some of them are several hundred. A lot of them are churches of under 30 people. Their goal is to plant churches of under 30 people. If they grow, they grow. And so I, I was there. I did my little teaching thing. I stayed in someone's home. But the last night I was there, I had to, to leave in like 2 in the morning or something. And so they put me in a hotel room. The guy who was supposed to take me to the airport was late. And I, and I thought he wasn't coming. He was that late. And I realized I don't have a phone number. I've done this I've, twice. I've been stranded in Europe because I didn't bother to take somebody's phone number with me. And, and so I'm sitting there freaking out. And so it stands out in my memory. And finally, he shows up. And he's got this really cool BMW that we don't even have in America. And I'm a kind of a car guy. And so I get in the car. I go, whoa, what's this all about? And he wants to talk church. And he's all bubbling over with excitement about that he, the reason he's late is that his 7 p.m. church or 7.30 p.m. church uh, just had a party for him because it's his last night there. And I pass their church at 4.30 on Sunday afternoon. I pass his other church in the evening. I go into to the neighborhoods where I can't take my children. It's dangerous. Uh, but God's doing these wonderful things. He tells me about all this stuff. And I'm getting ready to plant my fifth church next weekend. He goes to the mother church on Sunday morning has his family in the mother church, tithes to the mother church, does this other thing. He's taken being an everyday missionary and, and, and taken it out of the marketplace. He's taken it into the barrio. He's going to places where he wouldn't take his wife. And he's excited about it, and he's not disrupting his church or his family in the process. Is this cool? And so then I, I, we finally get down to the car, and I go, so tell me about the car. I go, oh, it's a company car. It's not even mine. And I go, well, what kind of a job do you have that you have this kind of a car? And he goes, oh, I own the BMW distributorship for the country. <laughs> so you have a filthy, rich man who's never going to leave that career to become a vocational pastor who's planted five churches 25 years ago. Wow. Now, what can you spin in your head and turn that around and go, this could happen in my town, and I know the nutball who would do it. <laughs> because what you really want to be looking for, if you're thinking this way, is the screwball guy who's never quite happy with what goes on in your church. He's always looking for a little more, and he irritates you, and he irritates your board members more so. And what you want to do is probably start meeting with him on Saturday morning or something over coffee, and make him your friend, and disciple him, and disciple him in this direction. Making sense? Mm -hmm. So let's go a little bit further. Assumption number two. Any congregation could position itself as a platform for movement making. Uh, there's a natural progression from mega to multi-site to now we're, we're realizing there's a ceiling to that, to multiplying churches. We need to think that way. We need a paradigm shift from ministry portal to multiplication platform. I want you to think of these two words, portal and platform. Here's a portal, Netflix. I click on Netflix. There's hundreds of movies that I can watch that they control. <coughs> they provided the content, they control the content, I can take my pick. It's just like going to a church in, in America 
we got this kind of Bible study, we got that kind of Bible study, we got this for your kids, we got this for your junior high school kids. Uh, we're a portal and we control. If you look at Google, they're a platform. You go in and you control it. We offer it, you control it, and you can find whatever the heck you want to. You can, you can create your own experience. We need to begin to think about you have spiritual gifts, you have standing in the community, you have income that you could do something with, you have neighbors that you know or you don't know. You could make something out of that. You can do it, we can help. How can we equip you to do whatever it is that God's put in your mind? And again, I'm thinking everybody should be mobilized as an everyday missionary, but some, and, and I'm pressing the multiplication thing, some should be multiplying churches, some of which will outgrow yours, and others are gonna stay small and multiply and multiply and multiply. Making sense? Mm -hmm. Now, if I wanna do this, and I'm over here, and I'm, I'm in this operating system, it's a Netflix operating system. I get over here, it's a Google operating system where I provide the content by whatever I want to make out of it. But think of Amazon. I write books and publish them on Amazon. So I'm a content creator. So Amazon starts out as a portal, come to us and we provide books, you can buy books. But now they're that, but at the same time off to the side, they got this little publishing thing going on. And so I'm talking to my friend Jeremy here, who's pastoring this church that he doesn't want to destroy. And coming out of this, the, the, the terrible danger of listening to Todd or me or anybody that's talking this way is you go home and decide we're going to tear everything apart. We're, we're done with level three. We're going to level five. See, you want to do the Amazon thing. No, we're just going to keep selling books. But over here on the side, we're going to, we're going to do this thing. And so you, 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 you kind of create a new wineskin off to the side and you, you protect what God gave you already. And eventually, because this thing's going to work well and you're going to be a hero maker and you're going to brag about it, you're going to slowly change the culture of the thing that you do without disrupting and destroying. Making sense? So here's assumption number three. It ain't that difficult. More than 20% of new churches that we're talking about here and the 4% of churches that plant, more than 20% of new churches come from churches numbering fewer than 100 in attendance. You see, the big churches in America don't plant churches. It's the small churches that plant churches, and so it's not that hard for anybody in this room to do this, especially the way that I'm describing it. Congregations smaller than 500 people account for 60 plus percent of all church plants in the United States. Acts chapter 11, 19 to 22, it was Christ followers fleeing Jerusalem that planted the church in Antioch. In fact, they had apparently planted churches all over the Mediterranean world before they got to Antioch, and their names aren't even in the Bible. And so there are people in your church who'll never be on some great roll call of the saints. They'll never have a brass plaque with their name on it, but they could go out and, and extend the kingdom of God in ways that we have yet to see. Um, Acts chapter 14 is one of my favorite passages of scripture because it just drives me nuts. Paul is stoned and left for dead in, where is it, Lystra, Derby, I always forget. Uh, his disciples gather around and pray for him. He goes back into the cities, he and Barnabas, to, to the disciples that are there that they had made earlier and they appoint them as elders and he leaves town and he doesn't even have email to connect with them. He trusts the Holy Spirit, it says that that they, they appointed elders 
and they committed them to the Lord. Some translations say they committed them to the Holy Spirit in whom they had put their trust. And so I, I think that what we are suffering from in America is an overabundance of strategy, uh, overabundance of, of systems, overabundance of controls, uh, overabundance of branding. I, I, I'm not going to let this person go because he might go out and do something stupid. I had my friend Matthew stand up. Uh, Matthew's doing in spades what we're doing, and he's doing it in Utah. He's going, what is it, wards or stakes? Well, every stake, which is 6 to six to 12 wards. Okay, every stake is 6 to 12 wards. You're going for every stake? So every stake, Mormon stake, they're going to plant a church. In Hawaii, every McDonald's, we were going to plant a church, and we did. Um, my favorite restaurant, so it was appropriate. But um, he just told me a story about one of his favorite disciples just turned against him, got all prideful, and, and is off doing something totally apart from That's going to happen. That's going to happen. Todd's been teasing me this week about I should write a book of it was worth it anyhow. Because I, I got about 10 of those stories in my life. But I've got about 80, because I've, I've hands-on discipled about 80 guys that planted a church, and they planted, and they planted, and they planted, and it grew from there. But I got a handful, that, that, and one right now, that's hurting me really, really bad. Uh, just the way he's treating people, that's going to happen. But somehow Paul had enough trust in the Lord that he could allow that to happen, and, and, and using whatever mail system he had, uh, wrote the epistles that he did. So assumption number four, money holds us back. One of the biggest issues, Todd said it this morning, follow the money, and you'll figure out why we're not doing what we do. In the U.S., we spend approximately $1.5 million for every baptism every year. And you're going to look at me and go, no, you made that one up. Now that's Pew um, Research. And, and what it is, you take all the, the, the buildings that we build, the programs that we run, the salaries that we pay, the seminaries that we support, the tuition of the seminaries, and, and you add it all together and you divide it by the number of baptisms, and it costs a million and a half dollars. Now I ask you, what does it cost to lead an individual to the Lord and dunk them? Zero. But we've added a lot of baggage to it, and we need to just probably rethink that. Um, cost of baptizing one person globally is far less than that. It came in at $753,000 if you do the same kind of math. 69% of all donations to churches come from people above the age of 49. And so this says we're going to have some trouble coming down the pipe. In fact, research shows that over the next three decades, church income is going to fall by about 70%. So we're, we're forced. We've got to do something different. It may not be what I'm saying, but we got to do something different because uh, the, the, we're going to pay the piper at some point. So here's the cost centers. Education, we do it by seminary. In the Bible, I can't, I can't find a school. Paul was at the school of Tyrannus in Acts chapter, uh, was it 22? Chapter 19. And, and he taught in a school that somebody else owned. He didn't run a school. They made disciples who made disciples who made disciples. Another cost center is salaries. Um, you have to think those people in Acts chapter 11 didn't get a salary for doing what it was that they were called to do. Um, the meeting places cost us money. They will continue to cost us money if we outgrow the houses or the parks or whatever it is that we meet in. Uh, and then there are church planting costs that link to the events. We try to throw off an event and think about this, a weekend service or especially a kickoff service where we spend a ton of money 
is not a church. It's an event. A church is a relationship. People loving each other while they're loving Jesus. And we focus on the event rather than focus on the relationship. And we tend to, it, it tends to just, just absorb money. And so um, we need to liberate our financial systems. And I'll go past that one. Assumption number five, our country is ready for freelance microchurch planters. A microchurch is an autonomous congregation. Now, it means it's a standalone church. It has its own board of elders. It, it, it has its own governance. It maybe 30 people has its own governance. However, it's linked to a larger network. You don't want a bunch of renegades out there. You want people who understand authority and live under authority and relate to others and, and, and feast off the relationship with others. Am I making sense? Mm -hmm. If we do this, then we're going to be able to reach into the nooks and crannies of our culture. If you look at church in America today, the large churches in America are, are either large white middle class, large black middle class, large Asian middle class. There's some of those. And there's beginning to be Hispanic middle class churches that are big. It's the middle class issue. You know, when I was in Honolulu, I took great pride in the fact that we were, were multi-ethnic. In fact, the last church that I planted, um, you never saw a white person in our worship teams. And we have like 14 member worship teams. And, and it was just a, a, a rainbow. But everybody is middle class. And then we have a few people who there were some poor Filipinos that came, they were mail order brides. Before we had the, the website deals we had, they had mail order brides. We had some of those in our church. And they were able to start a Filipino church. Actually, that little church, it's only a church of 300, is doing stuff in the Philippines now. They're sending down there, and, and I just got word that a guy named Rock Rakoma, uh, his wife is from the Philippines, she was a mail order bride, and they planted a church in the Philippines this last summer. That's a really cool thing. Uh, but they're starting to do it in Oahu because there are people who only speak Ilocano in Oahu. Veronica Rakoma speaks English as well as she speaks Ilocano, but she speaks Ilocano, and so they're able to do something that I could never do, and Ilocano speakers are never going to come and hear me preach. Am I making sense? There's a guy I talked about earlier, Randy Ishida. He comes from a rough background. He's never been in prison, but a lot of his friends have. He started a microchurch. He's got a job. He makes good money. He's a part of a church, but he also is planting microchurches. He's actually got a couple of them going. And so we're able to get into different places than we would get ourselves. You know of, of Ralph Winter and, and his terminology, E1, E0, E1, E2? E0 is I find somebody that grew up in church and then fell out and I bring them back to church. Evangelism, zero. Evangelism one is my next door neighbor is a white middle class guy and I lead him to the Lord. That's, that's E1. E2 is I, I got a friend who's really rich, who's a white guy. And, I, and, and he doesn't fit very well with my church, but I fit well with him and so I lead him to the Lord. But then he doesn't come to my church. He goes to Presbyterian church because there's people like that there. But see, if I could get to that guy and start a church in his community, uh, on the other end of it, there, there, there might be a, a poor Hispanic person in my life who we just become friends, and he feels comfortable in my church. But his family won't feel comfortable in my church. So I keep him in my church, but at the same time, I deputize him to plant a church among his family, and I support it in every way that I can. And so now we're over here in the E2 and E3 area, 
we're, we're getting to people who are different from us who are never going to feel comfortable with us. You know, making headway here? I got four more minutes, so uh, we're not going to need a lot of time for Q&A. Um, if you want to stay around after, well, we can talk a little bit. I want to tell you one more story. I was in Russia two years ago, and um, we were talking about these things. And I got the guy mad at me that invited me there. He's been my friend for some time. Actually, I helped fund him. And so he, he, he planted a half dozen churches in a little place in southern Siberia. And then he moved to St. Petersburg. And we're in St. Pete. He's struggling financially because it's a new church. He left behind a big church, a lot of courage, go start all over, and about 50 years old. There's a guy in his church named Dmitri, Dmitri Stolyar. And Dmitri comes from Sochi, which is in southern Russia. And he's living in St. Pete. He's got a good job. And he's got some friends that are Jews from Turkey who speak English. Dmitri speaks English as well as he speaks Russian. And he's been telling them about Jesus. Now, they come from a Muslim culture, and they call Jesus Esau. Um, not even a, a Hebrew derivation. They, they, they use a, a Muslim term for Jesus. And so we're talking, and, and in this last meeting, it was a small group of us at this point. And we're talking about, Dimitri, you should start a church among those, those Jews and their friends. Because they've got other Jewish friends that are from Muslim countries that have moved there. And Alexander just blows a gasket. Why would you want to deprive? Now see, he's a, a level three attractional guy who's managed to do some level four church multiplication, uh, church reproduction. But he is really big on the fact that they put on a great show on the weekend, and it really is good. It's a church about 125 people. It's mostly very young. It's very exciting. I was there. And so he just gets all red in the face, and he goes, why would you want to deprive those people from our wonderful worship experience? And I said a stupid thing. I mean, it wasn't stupid, but it almost wrecked a friendship. I go, because they don't speak Russian. And Dimitri speaks English, which they do. And he got really angry. I thought, I thought it was over in terms of our friendship before the morning was over. And then he calmed down. And so that whole afternoon, a friend of mine and I were together with Dimitri. He was supposed to take a sightseeing. It rained, so we just got to hang out. And, and so we're pressing him, you've got to start this. You've got to start a microchurch. You've got to start a microchurch. Next day, we go to church on Sunday morning, and Dimitri comes in. He's just smiling about that wide. And we go, what happened? And he goes, well, those Jews, they actually used the word church. They asked me if I would come to their house and start a church for them and their friends. He started a microchurch. Two years have gone by. And um, Dimitri moved back to Sochi. He has he's started two now microchurches. He's targeted seven locations for microchurches. The Jews accepted the Lord. They moved back to Turkey. I don't know for sure what happened, but I know that they were intent on starting a church among their friends down there. Uh, something that would never happen if we're stuck over here with this kind of an operating system. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. In addition to this podcast, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. 
May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.